Amen. You guys can grab a seat. We've uh, had the opportunity to sing to our Lord this morning. We've had the opportunity to hear about ways to give our lives to discipleship, to learn. And now we have the opportunity to hear from God's Word. And uh, my name is Josiah Lawrence, one of our assistant pastors. It's it's an honor and it's humbling to get to open God's Word for us this morning. We're going to be in Exodus. We're going to finish chapter 17, verses really 7 through 16 there. And so for those of you who haven't uh, been here, Exodus is an incredible narrative. It's a story that the big picture idea is God is bringing his people who were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. He's bringing them out of Egypt. But as has been mentioned before, the, the bigger idea of what's going on is God is not just trying to get the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery. Now they're wandering through the wilderness headed somewhere, and God is trying to get Egypt and slavery out of his people's hearts. And so as we think, why do we need so desperately to hear from his word today? One reason is we need for God to take the slavery of what we want to trust in more than him away from us. And we need to see him clearly that we might run to a God who is worth walking through a wilderness for. That we might know a God who would bring us freedom that we've never imagined. Those people for 400 years never imagined what the promised land would look like. They couldn't. They'd never seen it. And yet God is leading them somewhere. And so specifically, you know, the last few weeks, we've, we've been in the wilderness with the Israelites. They've been freed. God conquered Egypt at the Red Sea, the greatest army, and he's, he's been proving himself over and over again, and yet the people of Israel have continued to hold firmly to their doubt. They've held firmly to their slavery. Every time something comes up, they want to run back to memories of Egypt that are not true, and yet that draw them back again. They even talk about the meat pots they sat around back in Egypt, like that was really something they were doing as slaves. And yet that's what they want. They want that satisfaction that they imagined that they had. But what God has done the last two weeks we've been in Exodus is he's actually done that. They've accused him and yet he has met their needs. So a couple weeks ago, God gave them manna. And he gave it to them in such a way where day after day after day they would remember that he is the one that gave it to them. And then on the seventh day they would remember that he provides everything they need, even rest. And that they can worship him. And then last week, Kenan unpacked for us this idea that, that ultimately the Israelites were accusing God and Moses of not providing and protecting for them. God's done all this and yet again they say, you just brought us out here to die. Which is what many of us feel anytime we're, we're in a wilderness. We just see the next three feet of sand. We don't see the promised land and where God is taking us. And yet, when this courtroom is set up against God, who is the judge, he, he allows them to accuse him. He stands on the rock and allows Moses, with the staff of God that's meant to represent his authority, he allows Moses to strike him. And water comes out and they're satisfied. And we see here, we see what Kenan said last week, that it points forward to Jesus Christ, who was the only one that should have never been accused and yet allowed himself to be accused on our behalf, and he was struck so that we might receive satisfaction. But this story is not just about satisfaction. Yes, they've been fed and watered. 
The Israelites have their immediate needs taken care of, and too often we think that's what it means to trust. And, uh, and this is the only battle in Exodus. And so I thought I would share a, a pretty ridiculous story, honestly, of, uh, of the greatest, one of the better, let me say it that way, one of the better Braveheart-esque speeches I've ever heard. And so we were in the CC's parking lot. And there was, it was my freshman year of college, and uh, there was about 40 of us in the dorm, as packs of young freshman college men sometimes do. We had discovered the idea of the buffet, the all-you-can-eat buffet. And we had been the whole year trying to prove that that is not a thing. There is no such thing as all-you-can-eat as a freshman in college. And so we decided we would make this what we called Operation Domination. There was 40 of us, and we decided we were going to eat the entire buffet before they could refill it. And we wanted the manager to come out and admit defeat. We wanted him to come out and surrender. And so we, we pull up in all of our cars to, to CC's, and my buddy, I won't share his name in case anyone knows him. It's pretty shameful for him, but uh, really for all of us, but I signed up for this. He stands up on the truck. He starts pacing and pounding his hands and yelling, and all the other patrons are scurrying into CC's before we can get in there in fear and confusion about what is happening. And, uh, and he's up there, and he's saying, this pizza wasn't made for anyone else. It was made for us. And we will take this and we will eat all of it before they know. And we went in. We, we rushed in after that and then waited in line. And then we, we did. We, it's a little anticlimactic. But we did. We, about 30 minutes later, the manager came out. He didn't get on his knees or anything, which could have been fun. But he admitted defeat. Slash asked us to leave. Those, he, we, we considered it a victory. Uh, and this, you know, we're, it's a pretty silly story, and I, I wanted to share it, um, partially because what I, what I have to say in connection to it and where the Israelites are is, is so heavy. I don't, I don't want us to forget it. The, how we see our Christianity and what it looks like to trust Christ really makes a difference. And the, the Israelites here, they just got their food and water. But God wants something more for them. He wants them to trust him much more than just satisfaction. And so the question I have for us as we get started this morning is, is your Christianity, is it a buffet? Do you just go and get what you need and never actually put it to use? You know, is mostly after you spend time with the Lord, is the next best thing what we wanted after that? Was it just a nap? Or is it a battlefield mess hall where you are desperate to get what you most need because you want to use every ounce of energy it provides for what you must Go about and do and be. The Israelites were happy with manna and some water. But God wanted much more for them. He didn't just want satisfaction. He wanted them to be satisfied so that they might be ready for something greater. He had called them not just to make it through the wilderness, but to get to the promised land. And what were they going to need to be prepared to do when they got there? They needed to be ready to fight. And so today, he leads them into battle. And he wants to teach them that trusting him is much more. Yes, it's about being satisfied in him. It's where it begins. But it's about taking that satisfaction and being sent into what he's called us to do. And it's much more than just getting what we need. So with that being said, let's stand. Let's read God's word this morning. It's in Exodus 17, as I've mentioned. I'm going to start in verse 7, actually. These are the words of God to us this morning. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? 
Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of God for the people of God. And the people of God said, praise be to God. You can be seated. This morning we're going to look at this battle in three sections. We're going to see first the strategy for battle in verses 8 and 9. And then we're going to look at the two fronts that this battle is fought on. And then lastly, in the last few verses, we're going to see the spoils of battle. What happens at the end? What do you get in victory in this scenario? And so the first thing we see is as immediately we get on there, we see that in verse 7... This place, Rephidim, has been renamed the place of questioning. They want to know, as do we whenever we're in hard scenarios, is the Lord among us or not? Is he here? Is this worth waking up for? Is this worth going to him? Is he here or not? And God is going to answer them. And it's going to be amazing to see. The first in this strategy for battle, we see that Moses understands the enemy. And, and I want to help us a little bit because we don't know who the Amalekites are. We don't know that this entire uh, tribe of people came from Jacob and Esau, these twins. And Esau rejecting what God had asked him to do and saying, no, I'm not going to marry the women who worship the one true God. I'm going to, out of anger and frustration, uh, to maybe even despite my parents, I'm going to marry someone who worships other gods. And this... Long, a long time before began the Amalekites. The Amalekites are a type of sin, a type of worldliness. All throughout the Old Testament, they show up again and again. And every time the Amalekites are there, they're directly opposing what God is trying to do in his people and, and through his words. Uh, the Amalekites, not only are they a type of sin, not only uh, are they showing us you know, this incredible history of opposing God, but they are known to be the first that trained camels for warfare. And they're a nomadic people in the desert. So being attacked by the Amalekites when you're the Israelites who just got a drink of water and some manna and you're weak and tired in the middle of the desert is not a very promising scenario. You know, the Egyptians probably didn't give the Israelites a lot of swords and weapons on their way out of town. So whatever they have, they've probably made along the way. Or maybe they had them back in Egypt, but most Countries don't give those they've enslaved weapons. And so the Israelites, they are desperate. And we see in Deuteronomy, it, it looks back on this scenario, 2517. We won't turn there, but I want you to know where it came from. They see, they look back on this and said, you remember when we were leaving and heading uh, in the wilderness to the promised land and the Amalekites came and they attacked those who were straggling at the back and weak and tired. Not only are they perfectly built and made for nomadic desert warfare, but they fight dirty. They come get the people who are furthest from the cloud and the pillar of fire, who are furthest from everybody else out on their own, and they pick off the people at the back. 
And so this is a dire scenario. And before we even go any further, we have to see a connection there. This type of sin, this picture of sin that the Amalekites are, we need to hear that it's those who were furthest from the Lord's leadership who were easiest targets. Those who were furthest from the cloud that God was using to lead them. The ones who thought right before the Amalekites attacked that this is not that big a deal to be this far from God right now. That this isn't really going to affect my life. I can catch up with everybody in a little bit. Or the ones that said, you know, I know I'm hurting, but I'll just kind of hang back a little bit. I won't enter into those who could help me here. I'm I'm just in a season of busyness. I just got to do what I do. I'll, I'll head back up there to that cloud in a minute. We cannot miss that it's those that are most vulnerable. And so we don't want to make ourselves vulnerable. We want to run as close as we can, not ask how far is too far. But with that being said, there's two aspects of the strategy for battle that I, I want us to see. One, you see that Moses goes to Joshua. And he says, hey, I need you to go raise an army for tomorrow um, against these people who are perfectly suited for desert warfare. It's a high request. But it's also the first time we see Joshua's name mentioned. And his name means Jehovah is salvation. I love how God does that. I love when I'm reading his word and the impossible begins to be infused with a moment of hope. They're, they're hopeless, and yet they, Moses says, who do I need to go to? Joshua's probably his assistant. He's probably grooming him to take his place someday. Um, but he said, you know, I know who needs to prepare the battle. Jehovah is salvation. This man who won't forget that it's not ultimately about the men you get for tomorrow. It's about the God that you serve every day. And so Jehovah is salvation, gathers men together. And that's one aspect of the strategy. But Moses is the leader. You know, if I'm leading something, I kind of feel like I need to be down there in the middle of it. I need to be on the ground level. I would have thought that the most important place for me as the leader would be on that battlefield with the soldiers fighting against the Amalekites, but Moses prioritizes something else in his leadership. He says, I'm gonna get the staff of God and I'm gonna go up on this hill. And it's like, amazing that I am so convicted and so ashamed that for me, so often running to the Lord in dependence and intercessory prayer is often a last resort. It's not my first priority. It's not the most important thing I can be doing as a leader sometimes. Men, any of us who are leading anything, those of us leading your homes, we have an opportunity this morning to never again forget how important our primary strategic decision is. Will we be those who run to the Lord on behalf of our families, of our friendships, of our neighborhoods, of the places the Lord has put us? Will we fight strategically the way Moses was here? And so he, I also just wanted to mention that God hasn't yet promised Moses victory. He told Moses, hey, go out in the water, put the staff of God in there, and the Red Sea will split. He told Moses, he said, go strike that rock with the staff, and I will bring water from there. But this time he hadn't said anything yet. Moses is starting to get it just a little bit, isn't he? He's saying, you know, God hasn't promised me yet, but I'm going to have faith like a child. I'm going to run up on this mountain. I'm going to take the staff of God, and I'm just going to throw my hands in the air and say, Daddy, help. And I'm going to expect that he's going to do something in this scenario. And it just, it just reminded me, I've got two little kids, and it reminded me of crossing any street in our neighborhood in Memphis. Occasionally the cars are going about 65 on this 30, 30 miles per hour. Once you're a parent, you notice things like that. Everybody drives fast, and their music's too loud. But anyway... 
I'm trying to walk my kids across the street, and, and it's funny, I needed a picture of this so we wouldn't forget it, because I'm rarely on a mountain with a staff. But you know, you know what I am doing a lot? I see my little kids get up to the edge of the street, and they have been disciplined enough now to where they, they kind of think some magical barrier here, and they get to the edge, and they look back, and they just throw their hands up in the air, and they're like, Daddy! And they expect me to be there. They expect my power and wisdom to know how to look both ways and get them across. Uh, they expect me to be there, and I love that about them, unless I'm really tired, and then I'm, you know, not wanting to get up. But that's, that's what God is picturing for us. My little kids are reenacting what Moses is doing here every time they just throw their hands up and say, help, I need you. And so as we think about this, that's a strategy that we can employ. I can handle that. I don't know if I can go fight all the battles the Lord has called me to. But I can get right up to the edge of them and I can throw my hands in the air. And I can say, God, you are, you are enough to carry me through this. I'm going to trust in you. But we're going to see there's, there's a little more to it than we even imagine here. So the, not only is there a strategy that's kind of two-pronged, but there's two fronts that this battle is fought on. Verses 10 through 13 say that. We see verses, in verse 10, Joshua and his army, they're headed to fight the Amalekites. Then you see Moses, Aaron, and Hur headed up the mountain. And I'm not, I'm not a movie producer, but if I was going to make a movie about this scenario, I would be panning the lens directly to that battlefield. And I'd be saying, here's where the action is. Here's where the real battle is being fought. That's exactly what I would do. And yet God's word chooses to do something different. Instead, it pans to this older man and his two friends walking up a hill with a stick. And says, this is where the action is. This is where the battle will be won or lost. And I... I'm thankful that God's word is different from how I would think about it because I need to hear it. So the two fronts of battle, they take their places, Moses on the hill and Joshua and his men down on the battle. And we see something important about Moses here. He holds his hands up and they're winning and he puts his hands down and they're losing. Can you imagine as you are doing that and you put your hands down for the first time? And your brothers and sisters and friends and cousins and, and neighbors, they're dying because your hands just went down. That's a normal thing to have to do, to put your hands down. You're tired. But once you see when I do that, they start dying and losing. And when I raise my hands back up, the Lord somehow supernaturally works through that to where those that I love and know personally are winning again. And so he, he starts standing there. And, and I don't know how long it took, but he was probably shaking at some point. And he was desperate to do everything he could to fight, to remain dependent and trusting on his father. God hadn't promised him before, but now he's experiencing it in the moment. we got to forget that we already know the end of the story. Moses is up there shaking and sweating because he's starting to realize how important his prayer actually is. And he's showing us something that is far too often disappearing from our understanding of what it means to follow Christ. He's showing us what it means to wrestle with God in prayer. And we, gotta, we have to realize that that is a battlefront, that God says that the battle truly is not just against the flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers that are going on. And we have to decide, church, are we going to believe that this is a supernatural world that we live in, or is it just natural and we go do the church thing? Does a supernatural God actually hear our prayers? Or is it just kind of something we do because that's what Christians do? Moses 
got the answer to that that day. He realized how desperate they were and how truly God works supernaturally through very simple, natural means. Yes, sometimes God does the Red Sea, and he just does it for us. Many of us at the beginning of our experience of following Christ experienced something like that, where God came in and changed us and certain things just disappeared. We just said, God just defeated those enemies for me. But the ongoing walk with the Lord looks much more like this moment than that one. It looks much more like striving and trying to trust the Lord. And that's kind of the second front. I want us to realize that there really is a battle going on. Far too often, I think fighting against my sin and fighting to walk in the Lord is like, I'm gonna let go and just let God. You just take away my sin, Lord. You just make me holy. Just, just take away this struggle I have that I'm just gonna keep going to and keep in my life. And there's tons of ways that I know I could have less of this, but you just take it away, Lord. And usually he doesn't in that moment. Because there's something else we need to see, that there is a battlefront of some men down there dying. It's bloody, sweaty, and sandy down below the hill. And yes, the most important front that this is being fought on is up on that hill with Moses and Aaron and her. But it doesn't take away from the fact that these men down below are expending themselves in every way they know how. They can't just look up to the hill in a worship moment. If they do, the person coming is going to kill them. And in the same way, we can't just say, God, you just, you just carry me through this whole life. He does. But at the same point, he wants us to expend our effort. I want us to see that in Scripture briefly. The place I see it most clearly is Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. Before he goes to the cross the next day, he wants to trust the Father. But he is struggling. So much so that his capillaries in his forehead are busting and he's bleeding He's praying and fighting so hard that he might trust the Father, and he does. And he wins that victory for us because of that moment. And then we see again in Colossians 1, 29, I just want us to see this. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's the kind of sentence that the Bible uses. I struggle with every bit of energy that I didn't earn any of. I struggle with every ounce of effort, even though I earn nothing with that effort. The battle truly is won because Moses' hands are in the air and not down. Because he is depending on the Lord and the God is strengthening them. But at the same time, it never takes away the importance of them using every ounce of energy and effort that they have. And so I praise the Lord. I thank him for this reminder because it corrects some of our false ideas of what it looks like to follow Christ. If there is a step you can take in fighting sin, and this is talking more to those who have, are already knowing Christ. You know, if you don't know Christ, you place your faith in him, and in a moment, he saves you. Like the Red Sea, you just walk through in amazement that a God would just lead you through. And it's his power the entire time. But James also says, if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, that's a sin. And so let's not only hear part of what the Bible is teaching us this morning, right? Let's remember these men are fighting. And let's think about it. If there is something I can do, even if I just have homemade weapons and I'm weak and the enemy is stronger than me, even if that's all I have, let me take every step I know completely dependent on the Lord. We need to fight on both of these fronts as Christians. 
and then we'll experience more of the victory. And so I love that trusting does not exclude trying, (laughs) that he wants us to try, but to trust him at the same time and know that none of our trying wins the day. But it's incredible. They do it. They do. They trust him. But, but Moses, he doesn't do it alone. He gets too tired. And he's kind of like us sometimes. We're, we're actually trying to follow Christ and we're, we're trying to depend on him and trust him. And our arms are shaking. And, and there's these other two guys just standing there not doing anything. There's Aaron and her. I imagine they're praying as well. But God is really specifically working through Moses. And they're struggling. They're, he's straining all by himself. And then eventually he, he really just admits that he can't do it. And I love, the, I love what God's word does. It's really specific here. It says, okay, and they go get a rock that he can sit on, and they scoot it under him so that he can sit on this rock, and one guy gets on this side and holds his arm, and the other guy, he gets over on this side and he holds his other arm. It's like we know that he's got two arms and where they are, like, but it's so specific because we need to see that if we want to get to the sunset that it talks about in a minute when they win this victory, if we want to get to the end of our lives trusting and depending on the Lord, even with faith like a child, we're not going to be able to do it alone. We're going to need an Aaron and a her to hold up our hands at some point. And so I love that God teaches us about community in this simple way. Who's holding our hands? Who do we have that is holding our hands so that we might trust the Lord? Not just, oh, you can get through it, but you can trust him. You don't need someone to tell you, hey, quit fighting on the hill. Get down there in the battle and get to work. You need someone to say, yes, that's important, but you need to trust in the Lord. Let me hold your hands because you can't. Why don't you lean on my faith a little bit and let's trust in a great God together. And he does that until the sun sets and God gives them victory. And I love at the beginning when I was talking about the Amalekites, we realized that they should, they should wipe the floor with the Israelites. Wipe the sand, I guess. But at the end it says, and Joshua overwhelmed the Amalekites with the sword. I love it. They experienced the victory. And I don't know what, what it felt like right afterwards, but I want us to talk for just a moment, not just about the two fronts that they fought on, but I want us to talk for a moment about what were the spoils of this battle. Because I imagined myself in this Israelite situation. They win. Moses is exhausted. The men on the battlefield are exhausted. They're headed back home. And you know what? They're still in the desert. And there's probably another battle somewhere soon. And so, yes, they, they have experienced victory, but it's coming again. And sometimes that's how it feels walking with the Lord, right? We experience a victory, and then we're just afraid for the next hard time to come. We're worried, when's that shoe going to drop? And we think that life is lived here. Well, we need to see what are the spoils of victory that God gives to his people. Because those are the ones that will make us ready the next time the battle comes. You know, what we want when we're in the wilderness or when we want a battle, we just want relief. We just want it to be over, honestly. But God wants remembering. We want relief, but God wants us to remember that he's trustworthy. So what does he do? He tells Moses, hey, write this in a book. And tell it in Joshua's ear. He's going to be the leader of the future. What he needs most of all is to trust me. He needs to know that I'm trustworthy if he's going to step into the promised land and everything that I've called him to do. And so he says this, I don't just want relief for you. I want you to remember. And he goes, I want you to remember that I am going to fight your battles from generation to generation. 
You hear that? They know another battle's coming. They just saw him win. There's some men that are probably injured coming back from this battle. Aaron, Moses, heard they're coming down. They're coming back to the people. They could be celebrated. And yet what they most need is to trust and remember that he's worth it. It's probably not fun carrying books around for 40 plus years in the desert. If you're a nomadic people, you only take what is absolutely vital. And yet God says, go write this in a book. Go put this down. Carry it around as long as you have to, to remember that I am God. And then what is incredible about this, the first spoil of victory that they get is they get to know and worship God. God reveals himself to them. And we see this because Moses goes and he builds an altar. And he says this, God gives them one of his names. This altar is named, the Lord is my banner. And so they get to know who God is. And the reality is we want relief, but knowing who God is is so much more valuable. It's so much more meaningful. And this name of God helps us see that a little bit. We don't, we don't really get the idea of a banner. You know, we think of like a happy birthday banner that's across a, a threshold of a home or something. But this is a very different idea. This is more like in the American Revolution, there was one guy who didn't even have any weapons because it was so important that he held this battle flag up, this standard. The Romans had the same thing. For years and years and years, there was this standard that they held up because something would happen in battle. When life got hard, when the battle would come, smoke would be everywhere. You couldn't hear the leadership any longer because the the throngs of battle were ringing in your ears. And you couldn't tell, are we winning, are we losing, what's happening? But when you saw that banner shoved up into the sky, you saw some things that were incredibly important. If you'd been separated, you saw, I'm not alone. We're still here. The entire force of our army is still here and we're still fighting. And not only that, but you knew Which way are we going? You know, hey, we're advancing. The banner is moving forward, so I want to go with it. Because no matter what it looks like in this little moment of me and the few people fighting around me, I see that we are going forward and that the Lord is our banner. And so not only is it helpful because we realize we're not alone, not only do we know where to go for protection and so that we might fight with others who are with us, but we know the Lord is our banner, leads us forward in victory. And God has said to us in Revelation over and over again, he says, and this is for those who overcome. In Romans 8, he says, you are more than conquerors. It's because the Lord is our banner. It's because he fights for us. And so what we do is we look to the banner. And so we see here that the first spoil of battle is that they get to know and worship the Lord. And they get to have remembering, which is even better than relief. What an incredible moment. And in remembering, they worship. There's an altar. What I love to see here is that they had a lot of questions in verse 7. Is the Lord among us or not? Are we wasting our time here in the desert? Are we wasting our time in Memphis and Carville and Bartlett? Is he doing anything? Am I wasting my time waking up to try to read the Bible? Is this worth it? And so what we see here is their place of questioning Masa and Meribah. It has turned into a place of worship and celebration. And so I want us to know if you have questions today, maybe you don't know the Lord, maybe some of those I just said are ringing in your ears because you've been thinking that all week. We get to be reminded this morning that God turns our places of questioning into places of worship and celebration when we know him. And he wins these victories for us. So he's not afraid of our questions We can come to him desperate. 
We can come to him because we want to pray more and we feel ashamed. That shame's helpful. It shows us we need him. We can't do it. None of us pray the way we want. None of us are Moses and Aaron and her up there until sunset. But we have a God who is our banner. We have a God who turns our questions into worship. And so that's incredible. And, and one other thing, when they know him, one of the spoils is, that they get is they don't just know that God exists, right? They don't just know that he's powerful. They know now that he came today, that he met me today in what we needed. Yeah, a few days ago it was manna, then it was water, now it was the Amalekites. We don't know what's next, but we know that we can trust him today. Trust is not about the next 20 years as much as it is the next 20 minutes. Will we trust God today? I'm not asking you, will you trust him for the rest of your life? I'm not asking you, for, I'm just saying win the battle of trust today. Is he worthy of your today? Will you run to him today? Will you let others around you hold your arms up today that you might know him? And I have to close with this. We don't just have Moses. In Hebrews 7, verses 24 and 25, I have to read this for you. But he, beho- but he holds, talking Jesus, talking about Jesus here, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost, not just one battle at Meribah, but every battle every day for eternity because he lives for eternity. And this is why. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God since he always lives to make intercession for us. We don't have Moses who gets tired. We have Jesus before the throne of the Father interceding for us for eternity. Our, yes, we can praise the Lord. Let's do it. Take a nap on that one. This inc- he, he's doing it. Right now, Jesus is interceding for us. When we are just as overwhelmed as they were when they saw these trained camel nomads attacking them, he's interceding for us. He knows what your battle for trust looks like right now. And he's not afraid of it. And he wants you to come to him like a child. And not just that, Moses was an incredible intercessor this day. Joshua, whose name means Jehovah is salvation, he was an incredible warrior. But we also have a greater warrior. It matters what we do on this battlefield. It matters that we exert our energy and our effort and that we spend everything But a few chapters later in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, we hear this, again, speaking of Jesus. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. When Hebrews thinks about what it means to fight against sin, it's a little different than me. Hebrews says fighting against sin looks a little bit like shedding blood. And you know what? I've never actually experienced that much of a fight. And and that's what Hebrews points to. But there's one who has. And we already talked about it. The night before he was to be crucified, he fought the battle on the hill. And then the next day, he died on that hill. He spilt his blood. He fought both fronts of this battle for us. And he won them. He trusted his father perfectly the night before when he wanted to find any other way. And he trusted his father perfectly on the cross when he spilt his blood that we might not just be satisfied, but sent into his purposes for us. 
So as we close, I wanted to just remind us of one thing. That story where I'm walking my kids across the street holding their hands. There's one thing I just, I can't forget. And you learn it pretty quick as a parent. The first time you walk them across the street, just like us, they get pretty confident about halfway. They let go of your hands and they just start sprinting. Our battle for trust, my children's battle to get across that street safely is not about how hard they're holding onto my hands, but how much of my strength is holding on to theirs. And in the same way, it is not so much us winning this battle by how much we throw our hands up and how strongly we hold on to our Savior, but how strongly he has held on to us because he is interceding for us and he did win the victory as our warrior. Let's pray. Let's ask him to let us believe this and do things we already know. Let's, let's be those who battle in prayer. Let's pray with me now. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you hear us, Lord. Thank you that you fight our battles from generation to generation. Thank you, Father, that you are the God who intercedes for us. You came down and you understood what it meant to live a life and struggle with sin and selfishness and all these things, and yet you won the victory perfectly and you went to your Father in heaven and you intercede for us. Your spirit prays for us with groanings too deep for words. Lord, we want to meet you in those prayers. Lord, we want to come to you like little children and throw our hands in the air and say, Father, we expect you. Come get us. Lead us through. And don't just give us relief, Lord. Let us remember. Let us remember why you win these battles, Lord, so that we can know you in your presence. Lord, we worship you today. Even now as we continue to worship you in song, Lord, draw our hearts to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.